Well, good morning, community of faith. How are we doing this morning? All right, if you're joining us from home, welcome. The third part, the last part of our series on marriage. Before we get started, I want you to do me a favor. I want us to pray over a good friend of mine. Marco and Karina are in the house over here, and uh, we're so glad to have them. But they're here because Karina's struggling. Uh, Her kidneys are having some issues. So would you join me in praying for her right now? God, I just lift up Karina to you. And I just ask, as we all agree together right now, that you would heal her, that you would do what only you can do, that you would give the doctors wisdom, that they would know exactly what's going on, and that you would just uh, help her body to just uh, begin to function exactly like you intended for it to. And we say, come kingdom of God upon her, be done will of God over her in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for that. I know they appreciate that. Well, we're gonna have our counselors are out in the lobby, our marriage counselors, and also we have our small group leaders out in the lobby. They have blended family group. They have parents of teenagers group. They have parents of preschoolers. A lot of those are on Wednesday night now. And we also have prayer time together on Wednesday night. Those of you who wanna join us, so. Um, You go sign up, go find out more about that if you wanna sign up. Also today is Baptism Sunday. And so we're gonna baptize. We just baptized 47 people in the last service and that's so exciting. Um, And many of them that got baptized didn't expect to get baptized because I'm gonna give you the same opportunity I gave them. We'll have a a chance to go out and get baptized today. Um, We have clothes for you. We have a change of clothes. We have a t-shirt, shorts. Or you can do like I'm gonna do and just go jump in the baptismal pool in your clothes, okay? I wanna baptize you today. So uh, if you haven't been baptized, I want you to do that. Some of you are going like, well, I wasn't planning on joining the church today. We're not sure we want you either, okay? So um, this is not about joining the church. This is just a chance for you to follow Jesus in that very first step as you step into the journey with him. Well, we're talking about marriage and we wanted to review because some of you haven't been here, but we'll just do it really quickly, as quickly as we can, okay? In the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul is talking about love. He says, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't seek its own way. And he talks all about love. And then all of a sudden, in verse 11 of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, he says this, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Hmm, childish things. What what does that have to do with love? Well, that's what we've been finding out. When marriage gets difficult, people usually take that as a sign that something is very wrong with their spouse, usually, right? But something is very wrong. They're thinking, this is way too hard. Not only that, but we've totally lost that love and feeling, you know? But marriage is not a love and feeling factory. Did you know that? Marriage, the purpose of marriage, marriage is a people growing machine. That's what God intended for it to be. You see, if we never entered into long-term commitment relationships, it's too easy to never have to figure out ourselves, to have to, face our issues, to face our imperfections and our weaknesses. But in marriage, you can't ignore these. Why? Because your partner isn't gonna ignore them, right? 
and we'll point them out to you. So we learn, we grow. Anxiety, discomfort, the very things that would make you think you have a terrible relationship are also there in healthy relationships. Did you know that? But you learn to work through the discomfort to break out to a whole new level. And, you know, Laura, we've talked about our early marriage and how difficult it was. And I used to always kid around, and I don't do it anymore because Laura said, that's enough of that, you know? And I'd say, we're gonna be married for 40 years come this December 20th, and it's been 33 of the happiest years of my life, you know? But the truth is, those first years were difficult, really difficult. We didn't know if we were gonna make it or not. Marriage puts pressure on you to become more than you ever thought you could be. And most couples I know, they're trying hard to make their marriage work, but the things they're trying are not hitting anywhere close to the core issue. What, what is the core issue? As a couple, we have disconnected emotionally. We don't feel emotionally safe with each other. Almost every fight is really a protest over emotional disconnection. The anger, the criticism, the demands, they're really cries from the hearts of our partners, attempts to pull us back in emotionally and reestablish some sense of connection, a safe connection. Even kids understand this. Listen to Billy, age four. When someone loves you, even the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. I like that. But see, our problem is we tend to focus on surface issues. We think the fight we're fighting is really about the topic we're fighting about. But listen to what one of the great men of wisdom wrote in Proverbs 20, verse five. The real motives come from deep within a person, as from deep waters but a discerning person is able to draw them up and expose them. You see, distressed partners may use harsh words, but what's happening deep underneath the surface is that they're always asking the same basic questions. Are you there for me? Do I matter to you? Will you be there when I need you, when I call out for you? Disconnection to feel suddenly emotionally cut off from your partner is terrifying to a human being. And when we feel that our connection with our partner's in trouble, we feel what I call hot emotions. You could call them triggers or trigger points. And we discussed that last week. We automatically try to shut them down. How? by fleeing into our default options or ways of connecting, we learned growing up with our primary caregivers, childish things. It's time to have a grown-up marriage. These default options happen so fast, scientists tell us in one two hundredth of a second that we don't even realize that they're emotional flashbacks. We have no sense of choosing them. They just happen. We think it's about the moment right now, but it's not. But they lock us into the same old self-defeating conflict with our partners. It's almost like a hardwired panic. We've gone through this so many times, and the neurons that have fired together, they kind of wire together. And so 
we go through these same things over and over. They don't work in adulthood. They helped you survive as a child in whatever growing up situation you were in. You learned how to function and to make it work, but it doesn't work in a marriage at all. And we can't reconnect to our partner. Triggers are those raw spots that come from our temperament, how God made us, our personal attachment histories, and from negative experiences, even trauma that we have experienced growing up. But here's the thing, they always, always, always appear in moments when our partner is perceived by us as not responding to our need for loving attachment, for connection. And it triggers our fear of rejection and abandonment. If you were here last week, you remember we said that there are two clues that let you know when one of your triggers or one of your spouses has been touched upon. And that first clue is just that there's a sudden radical shift in the tone of the conversation. Maybe you and your spouse have just been talking and joking and then all of a sudden, one of you is super angry or else really chilly and cold and kind of disconnected from the conversation. That's a sure sign that somebody has been triggered. The second clue is when your emotional reaction to a situation is way out of proportion to what's actually happening in the moment. When that happens, you know that you've been triggered as well. And it happens to all of us. You guys can probably all think of a time when you felt those things. But you remember God created us for attachment, right? He designed us for that, to attach to our parents and later to attach to our spouse. Genesis 2.24 tells us, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. One translation says they cling to one another. That's what attachment is. And we've seen that typically as human beings, we have one of four different attachment styles. We learn these as children in our interactions with our parents, and they continue to impact us as adults. And that's why we, we see these issues in our relationships. We went into depth on those last week. And when it comes to uh, our conflict and we have in relationships, these, these uh, patterns of attachment really impact us. Um, just a quick review, those of us with a secure attachment style are able to connect emotionally and we can work through conflict successfully. That's really the goal for all of us. But for most of us, we're not exactly there yet. Some of us have an anxious attachment style and for those of us with that, um, we struggle sometimes to connect emotionally. We tend to we come across often as demanding or clingy. Um, we may end up pushing others away even as we're trying to pull them and draw them in closer to us. Those of us who have a dismissive avoidance style, um, you struggle, I struggle at times to connect emotionally, but we tend to rely on ourselves in a conflict situation and we tend to withdraw and pull away from our spouse. That's, that's why I told you, you know, I don't like like the traditional, you know, when they talk about the man, woman, and there's kind of these stereotypes, I always go like, I'm the woman again, you know? And I look at Laura, you're the man, you know? So what's the deal with that? And then there's a fourth attachment style that is uh, called the fearful avoidant style. And this develops as a result of childhood trauma, maybe parental hostility, maybe you've suffered some type of abuse and, and you, end up with the kind of a mix of that anxious and avoidant styles. When conflict comes and we feel triggered, 
we generally respond with that attachment style, and there are two things that we try to do, one or the other. Most of us respond in one of these two ways to, to protect ourselves and to try to hold on to that connection with our partner. One way is to avoid engagement. That means you try to shut down your emotions, you deny that you really even have any attachment needs. The second way is that you listen to your anxiety and you begin to fight for recognition and response. Now I imagine as I say that, you, you know who you are, right? And you probably know who your spouse is as well. But the thing is, neither of these is productive. We have to learn a different way. Remember your conflict, conflict pattern is the issue here, not your spouse, and it's not you, it's the pattern that you learn. And the good news is, the pattern was learned. So that means it can be unlearned. We can all learn new ways of relating to one another, especially during conflict. In marriage coaching, I've seen couples in my office who have had struggles for years and years and years turn it around that day because they started to put into practice what we're talking about. This doesn't have to take years and years. Now, if the trust has been totally eroded, it's gonna take a little bit longer. But as we look at this, and so what, what I wanna do today is I want us to take a moment and look at how these attachment styles interact. And that's why we had to review them real quickly for you, okay? There's three deadly interactions that kill our relationship. The first one is called protest, protest or find the bad guy would be a good name for it. This is when two anxious attachments marry each other, okay? And they're, they're both anxious. It's what we see in Genesis chapter three, the very first time that attachment style kind of rears its head is with Adam and Eve right after they fell into sin and God comes and says, Adam, where are you? And he pops out from behind the tree and he goes, it was that woman you gave me, right? It's blame the bad guy. If both partners have the attachment style of anxious, they're prone to protest, protest. This is a dead end pattern of mutual blame that keeps couples miles apart. Fights look like who gets to define who? I know you are, but what am I kind of thing, right? Both partners define the other as somehow Defective. I remember the first time that I went to counseling because I'm anxious, even though this isn't our attachment, anxious, anxious. I, I, I said, I don't know what's wrong with her. I don't know, you know, because my life was great. And then I got married and then, you know, but the purpose of find the bad guy is self-protection. But the main move is blame or attack or accusation. It starts when we feel hurt are vulnerable with our partner. Suddenly, we feel out of control and emotional safety is lost. When we're alarmed, we'll use almost anything to try to give us back this control and we learned to feel in control as a child and you survived your childhood, congratulations, by defining the other person in a negative way. We attack either in reactive anger because of something they've done or maybe even a preemptive strike, like my gun's ready and I think I'll just go ahead and you know shoot it off because I know you're coming for me eventually. Find the bad guy could just as easily be called, it's not me, it's you. 
you know, we have a problem, you, right? In my marriage coaching, sometimes I, I know what's happening because these couples will bring up detailed example of each other's failure, just example after example. I mean, I try, it's like we've come here to make our marriage better and all they do is spend an hour, each of them telling me how bad the other one is. And they just go back and forth and back and forth. No, that's not what, you know, it's just this huge argument. And one, one guy told me, he goes, you know, every time we have a fight, my wife gets historical. And I said, hysterical? He goes, no, historical. She can remember everything that ever, you know, I ever did. And th these couples fight over whether these details are true. You know, is that, is that, that's not true. That, or maybe who started this? The desire to win the fight and prove the others the bad guy creates this circle of criticism. It has no beginning and no end. But in fact, nobody wins this one. What does it matter if you can say, I was right. If the relationship ends, you both lose. See, there came a point when I realized that it's about connection. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. Laura and I are so different. We disagree so often about so many things. And I finally, I realized we just need to be connected anyway because she can be wrong if she wants to, you know. Some of you are going like, oh, we're getting ready to have a, a, a talk about that. I'm about on the way home. What does it matter if you both lose in the end? How do you stop it? No one has to be the bad guy. It's the pattern that's the villain. Even if you win by proving the other one wrong, you lose. Childish things. Somebody in this marriage, please choose to be the adult and stop this vicious cycle. The second, and this is the most common conflict pattern, this is called protest and withdraw. This is when an anxious attachment marries an avoidant attachment. This is our marriage in a nutshell, okay? I mean, there's something about the anxiously attached and the avoidant that attract like magnets. You know, have you heard, you know, opposites attract and then they attack? You know, that's kind of, this is the most widespread and ensnaring pattern in relationships. In fact, psychologist John Gottman of the University of Washington, Seattle, he's done huge studies on this. And he said, couples who fall into this pattern in marriage many times don't make it to the fifth anniversary. And those that make it, that stay together are miserable and mired in it indefinitely. So we've beaten the odds. We beat the odds, yeah. Those are some pretty rough years though. You're both attempting to connect. You're just both really terrible at it. You really never learned how to do it. The anxious attachment usually starts it and it's about trying to get a response. I mean, any response. So the anxious partner, anxious partner reaches out usually in a negative way, and the avoidant steps back. And the pattern repeats, and the pattern repeats forever because the emotions and needs behind the pattern are the most powerful on the planet. Attachment relationships are the only ties on earth where any response is better than no response at all, even a negative response. 
When anxious attachment gets no emotional response from the avoidant, we're wired to protest. And so this pattern is all about trying to get a response, a response that connects and reassures. Couples have a, a really difficult time recognizing this pattern. The anxious partner is demanding, actively protesting the disconnection. The avoidant partner is withdrawing, quietly protesting the criticism. Dissatisfied partners, missing each other's signal, often complain of like, it's just like a constant tension. This is not a power struggle. It's an attachment struggle. Rather than conf the, the conflict or control, the issue is emotional distance. The avoidant partner feels threatened and attacked. So they go radio silent and the silence sparks rage and aggression in the anxious partner. Listen to what one wife said. The more he refuses to talk to me or dismisses my feelings, the angrier I get and the more I poke him. Anything to get a response from him. Her husband then chimes up. And the more I hear that angry tone in her voice, the more I just hear that I can never please her. I just get hopeless and more silent. Our wired in deep need for emotional connection and that fear of rejection and abandonment keeps this pattern going. Even when our brains know, it's so crazy because our brains somehow know that we're making it worse by criticizing our partner or by shutting the other one out, but we just can't seem to switch off this automatic response to our longing and our fear. How do you stop? If you're the protester, the demander, the anxious one, see your spouse as a child. Think back, see them as, you probably have pictures of them. Look at them as a little child. They're trying to protect themselves. This is how they learned how to do it. So get softer instead of more critical. Get clearer in what you're asking for. Not negative. Tell them what you really want. And what that is, is connection. If you're the withdrawer in this, see your spouse as a child, begging for emotional attachment that isn't there. Be more receptive and responsive to their well, probably awful attempts at connection. Choose not to hear, this is a big one, choose not to hear their disappointment or disapproval as a personal attack. That's really hard. But as a sign that they desperately long for and need support and attachment and security. Now, here's the thing. If this faulty pattern continues, what we see is that the demanding protesting partner begins to give up the struggle for connection. They grieve the relationship and they move back. And this surrender leads to the last pattern, the quietest pattern, but the most devastating pattern right before a relationship dies. It's the conflict pattern of withdrawal, withdrawal. In this pattern, no one's reaching for anyone. Both partners feel helpless. No one's taking any risk. This happens when a protest withdrawal couple, it happens when the protester, the anxious one that's trying to connect, gets tired and gives up pursuing. At this point, and when I see this in my office, I get really concerned. Partners typically are very polite to each other, even cooperative, they're pragmatic, but unless something is done immediately, 
the love relationship's over. Eventually, the withdrawn partner kind of wakes up and may finally realize that even though things seem more peaceful, like, oh, it's finally peaceful. Uh-oh, now there's no emotional connection of any kind, positive or negative. And this partner, <clears throat> a lot of times will say, let's go, okay, I know you've been wanting me to go to a counselor for the last three years, five years, eight years, but you know, let's, let's go. Or, or okay, let's read that book you've been talking about. But oftentimes it's too late. See, if the couple waits too long to get help, a point comes when there's no way to renew trust or revive the dying relationship. So which of these sound familiar to you? Which pattern do you see in your relationships? So we know the attachment styles, we know the conflict patterns, but what do we do when we see ourselves caught in these cycles that don't work and they don't bring connection in a relationship? Remember when you're in the heat of a conflict, these pattern responses happen in an instant, literally a nanosecond, Mark said. And, and the key is that we have to learn to slow down. Last week, Mark told us that we needed to stop, pause, and choose. And that's what I want to encourage you when you get in the middle of a conflict like that to take a breath and stop and say, now I have the chance to choose to do something differently. But stepping aside from our childish ways of protecting ourselves, it can be uh, risky. It can be painful even if you've never done this before, if you've never connected on an emotional level like that. And if, but if we don't take that risk, we're going to be alone forever. That's why it's important. We'll never have the intimacy we're longing for if we don't step out and acknowledge this is what I'm feeling and this is what I need from you. One of the most important things that Mark and I learned to do as a couple and, and you know, probably saved us, um, it helped us to actually get below the surface from those reactive emotions like anger or fear and get down to what was really going on inside of us. And it's what we learned to do is to have a, what's called a hold me tight conversation. The hold me tight conversation was developed by Dr. Sue Johnson and it's centered on our attachment injuries and it forms a bridge between two separate realities. And we wanna teach you how to have this conversation today because I think it can have a profound impact on your relationships. It's based off of two questions. The first question is, what am I feeling right now? In this moment of conflict, what is it I'm feeling? Or maybe better said, what is it that I'm afraid of in this moment? Now, for some of you, this is gonna be a challenge because you've never expressed your feelings this way. You've never learned how to do that. You're gonna to have to take that elevator down a little deeper this time and get below the surface level emotions. You hear about some people, they say their elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. Well, a lot of ours doesn't go all the way to the bottom. Okay, we don't know what we're feeling at all. So we need to go down to the ground floor and discover what those emotions are. And it's gonna take some practice probably for all of us. The second question is, what do I need most from you? In this moment, in this conflict, what's going on right now, what do you need most from them right now so that you feel safe and secure? What is it you're longing for? I need you to shut for? up. No, that's not the answer, okay. <laughs> that's not the answer. Although that was probably some of our early conversations as we were learning to do it. But if you can tell them, what you feel, what you fear, what you need most from them right now in this moment, 
It's crucial to our relationships. It changes everything. Fear and longing are really two sides of the same coin. Listen to what the scripture says in Psalm 119. It says, oh, love me, and right now hold me tight just the way you promised. Now comfort me so I can live, really live. That's what intimacy is. It's being able to have one partner share what they feel and share what they need from their partner, and the other partner is listening and responding with how they feel and hearing the partner's deepest needs. That's intimacy. But it takes a huge leap for most of us. For those of us who have had little experience sharing in an emotional way, it's, it's frightening. It's scary if we haven't experienced safe emotional relationships. But why do it? I mean, why do it at all if it's risky? Because that's the way we're gonna have connection with one another, because you love each other. I mean, when you married him or her, you were in love with them, right? And this is how you're gonna stay together. This is how you're gonna develop the emotional connection that you long for. Remaining defended and isolated really is a sad, lonely way to live. And you guys, I know for some of you, are experiencing that in your relationships. You're longing for that closeness. The author Anais Nin expresses the idea beautifully. She said this, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in the bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. God allows this pain in our relationships and in our lives so that we'll grow together. Now here's the thing, Laura and I needed a lot of help with this and so do you, okay? So we have a little worksheet for you. You can find that, it's the hold me tight conversation. It's in our message notes you can find on our website or if you have the Community of Faith app, it's right there in the, did you know there's an app and you can follow along and, and have message notes? So it's right there for you. It in, and so we wanna walk through that with you quickly this morning. It involves a sharing partner and a listening partner. The sharing partner shares in a non-disparaging tone, a soft tone, what's going on inside of them. And the listening partner does exactly that, only listens intently. Don't interrupt, you don't get to interrupt. You just listen and I want you to really hear. Some of, it, some of you, it'll be the first time you've ever been heard, okay? So here's how you do it. First, identify a specific moment during a conflict when you suddenly felt more vulnerable or on guard. That would be triggered. What did the other person do or say that, that led to this feeling? And then tell them when you did or said this and tell them exactly what they did or said. Now, try to be as factual as you can. I know maybe you heard it, you know, way harsher than they said it, or, but it, from your perspective, try to get it as close to what they actually did or actually said. And the listener's just listening. They're not saying, no, that's not what I said. I didn't said. do that. <laughs> what are you talking, I didn't do that. You know, don't, you just listen, you're listening, okay? Get your ears on. Number two, think about which emotion you showed when this happened. This is for the sharing partner. When you did or said that, I probably showed what? And it's usually a reactive emotion. Usually it's anger. That's the most armored emotion. That's the one that helped you survive, okay? Anger is armored up, but there's no intimacy in anger. So there's really another emotion going on underneath. The reactive emotions are anger, frustration, jealousy, anxiety, resentment. But this is where it gets tougher, all right, sharing partner? 
I want you to find the underlying feeling. You can usually find at the core of anger and these other emotions of fear or anxiety that involved being rejected or abandoned by your partner. See if you can pinpoint this fear. When Mark and I first got married, I really hadn't had much life practice in identifying emotions and expressing those things. And, and there were times when I really couldn't even say exactly what it was I felt. I couldn't identify what that emotion was. And so I found a tool that was really helpful to me and I just wanna share it with you because if you're someone like me, you're gonna need a little bit of help. There's something that's called the emotion wheel. You can actually just Google that, find it online. I think you can even find it in Spanish. Um, and you'll see in the center of that wheel, it lists those basic reactive emotions like anger or sadness or jealousy. But then it expands on that and it gives you the vocabulary you need to express what it is you're actually feeling in the moment. When we were, uh, well, for a long time, I actually kept the emotion wheel up on the She laminated it and put it on the fridge because I needed it. And if we would get in a, a, a conversation, a conflict, it'd be like, hey, let's go talk by the refrigerator <laughs> because I need to be it able to see. didn't matter where we were having the argument. She said, let's go to the fridge. And, and it worked, but we gained 20 pounds. <laughs> but it helped me to be able to identify and even for myself to know, oh, this is what I'm feeling and be able to express that to Mark. So when you did this, Tell them exactly what it was. I probably showed this, a reactive emotion like anger. But what I really felt underneath, and this is where you have to work at it, and the feelings wheel works out and gives you from each of those reactive emotions what it might be. This is something deeper. What I really felt was lonely. What I really felt was dismissed. What I really felt was unimportant, helpless, hopeless, intimidated, inadequate, ashamed, confused, failing, humiliated, overwhelmed, unwanted. We put all those down there for you so you can pick them, okay? When you felt this way, number four, what response or reassurance from your partner would have helped with that fear? Try to tell your partner in a short, simple, and direct way what you need from them when this fear comes up. And this need or longing is usually some kind of caring, comfort, or reassurance. It's gonna take some work, okay? Because some of you have never been here. You've never done this in your life, ever. In that moment, what I really needed from you was, and think about what you most need in order to feel secure and loved. And we wrote some of those down there for you. I needed to feel that I am loved and accepted, even with my failings and imperfections, because I can't be perfect for you. Or I needed to feel that I am needed, that you want me close. I needed to feel that I am safe because you care about my feelings, my hurts, my needs. I needed to know that I can count on you to be there for me, to not leave me alone emotionally or even physically when I need you the most. I needed to know that I'll be heard and respected. Please don't dismiss me or leap into thinking the worst of me. Give me a chance to learn how to be with you. I needed to feel that I can count on you to hear me and to put everything else aside, that this is the most important relationship in your life. As the listening partner then, you listen and still don't, you're not disagreeing, you're not 
you're just listening, okay? And so how do I know you are listening and how do they know? You repeat back to them the same words that they said to you. When I did blank, you showed this emotion, snarky. But underneath, you really felt this emotion, lonely. And what you needed most from me in that moment was to know that we're still in this together, that I love you, that we're gonna do this, that we're gonna make it, that we're not giving up, that you, you wanted me to hug you or hold you tight. And then it's your turn, listening partner. For the listening partner, share with your partner how it feels to hear their deepest longing. Does this need make sense? Is it hard to take in on an emotional level? Can I tell you in my office when I hear the pleas of an abandoned spouse, especially an abandoned wife. Oh, it's just, it's so hard to hear. And a lot of times the, the other spouse will break down into tears. Is this hard to take in on an emotional level? Does this need worry you? This is how I feel when I hear what you need most from me. And you fill in the blank. I feel that you are stupid. No, don't do that because then you started it all over again. You see what I'm saying? That's not what we're doing here, all right? How would you like to be able to respond? Maybe you say, I get scared because I don't think I'm enough for you. I don't, I don't feel adequate to this. I've never done this. I'm out of my depth. I don't know what to do. How, how would you like to be able to respond? It's about an emotional connection. So that's the hold me tight conversation. And current neuroscience research has shown that every time a couple engages in this type of conversation where they're connecting on an emotional level, it changes everything. Not just your relationship, it actually changes your body. It actually changes your brain, the cells of your brain. We have some cells in our brain called uh, mirror neurons, and they start firing off when you have this type of conversation. And these are the neurons that science has shown that enable us to understand and feel what our partner is feeling. And so it's so important that they're in your prefrontal cortex and they actually start vibrating, you know? So I'm like, wow, Laura, I think we're vibrating, you know? This is a different level <laughs> of understanding. <laughs> okay, he said that in the first vibrating. service and I was gonna tell him not to say that in this one and I forgot. <laughs> so don't read anything into that, okay? <laughs> These are our neurons firing. <laughs> We're connecting to one another, and, it, and we actually experience what the other person is feeling. And, and the science is showing us, it's validating that our authentic connection is about feeling heard. It's about feeling known. And I know for some of you, these types of conversations, maybe you're listening to this and thinking, uh-uh. It's not safe. I can't go there with my partner. I wanna encourage you, if that's you today, to contact our counseling center. Let them walk with you when oh, you so begin to have these types of conversations and let them help you and support you as you begin to share emotionally with your partner. The emotional bond forged here is something that many of you have never, ever experienced in your whole life. But it's what God intended this trusting, I call it leaning, leaning into one another. It's 
It's what allows emotional connection to happen. Leaning allows you to take the weight off your old protectors. It allows you to let go of the tightness or the rigidity of those old rules or the old story. You know, learning to lean, it's a lot like learning to float. Have you ever taught a small child to float? Teaching a child to float in the water is incredibly difficult. First of all, there's no logical reason that anyone should believe in floating at first sight. I mean, most things you put in the water, they sink. And all small children know this too. So when you tell them that you just want them to lie there on top of the water, they look at you like you're insane, that you've lost your mind, you know? It makes no sense to their experience. It's a really gradual process. First, you have them lean against you. You're in the pool, in the water. And then when they trust you enough, you have them just on your hands out in front of you and you've got your hands underneath them and then slowly you begin to kind of let them see what it feels like to float bit by bit. You let the water hold them. But it's gotta be gradual, why? Because the minute the child gets scared, what do they do? They scrunch up and they sink and they reach up and scream and grab your neck, proving their own point that floating is impossible. But listen to me today, floating is possible and it's amazing and a whole lot better way of interacting with water than drowning. Can I give you a suggestion this morning? Maybe you're still, I don't know if I'm there with my spouse. Start with leaning on God. Jesus said he's the perfect father. He loves you just as you are. He sees you completely. What's the simplest way to start with that? The first little baby step. Baptism. Baptism is leaning back into God. God, I rest all I am or will ever be on you. Now, I know it's not comfortable. Some of you just kind of scrunched up, you know, but I'm going to walk out there with you. I'm going to get in the baptismal with you. You can grab my neck if you need to. I'll go under with you. I've done that a few times already, you know, as you lean back, why baptism? It, it, it seems so strange, but you're leaning back. Jesus, I'm trusting in you and you alone for my life. I receive everything you did on the cross for me. And as I lean you back, it's amazing. Some of you fight that like crazy because it's a oh, lack of control. And as you go under the water and I raise you back up, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk, in a brand new life and everyone around you is clapping and excited and cheering. It's the most amazing thing. Again, you're coming up with all kinds of excuses why you don't wanna do it, but it's baby steps. Jesus said, go into all the world and tell them about me, the good news of me, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 47 of us did it last service. Married couples, engaged couples. We had so many of them get baptized together. We're saying we're going to go God's way. It's God's way. Let's do it God's way. Some of you were baptized as babies and that's a beautiful thing. But that was the priest and your parents. I'm gonna raise this child up in the church. It's time for you to have a grown-up baptism. In the Bible, it was after you said, I'm going all out with you, God. 
that you were baptized, buried with Christ in baptism, and raised to walk in a brand new life. Will you do that with me? You can do this. We've got shorts, T-shirts, or you can get in like I'm getting in. I'm gonna just walk out there right now and get in, okay? You saw some people getting up. Some of them are already planning on getting baptized because this is Baptism Sunday, but a lot of us need to be baptized today, and we're gonna go do it right now. I asked the band to close us out. They're gonna sing over us. You'll see us on the big screen, but if you wanna get baptized, I want you to stand up right now and start walking out. Now, if you go out there because you wanna get ahead of traffic, you're gonna get baptized, okay? So don't do that, all right? Just get up and go. In fact, let's all stand together. That'll make it easier for you. I'm gonna walk out. The band's gonna sing, and we're gonna worship together.